Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the award-winning recovery podcast. Get into the get in the herd. I don't even know our podcast name. Uh oh, that's a bad that's a bad omen. Brought to you by the McShin Foundation here in Richmond, Virginia. My name is Nathan Mitchell. I am outreach director here at the McShin Foundation, and I am your host today. Our special guest is a is is someone and. I have known professionally now for almost three years, I think, at this point, or at least two two years, maybe. Um, and we've met in person once, if you remember. We met once once in the before times, long ago in the before times. And we now serve um, on the faces and voices of uh, faces and voices of recovery uh, recovery month planning committee. Uh, we serve on a on a sub uh, sub work group of that. So. Mario S. Huffnagel, coming to us from New Jersey, my own home state where I was born. Welcome to the show, Mario. Um, we've asked you here today to share um, experience, strength, and hope, share your recovery journey, um, share with us what got you into the advocacy work that you do, and really anything you want. I've been so excited to, to, to be able to talk to you and to hear your story. I've only read about it. And so I'm really excited to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. So happy to be here. Um, so, as we, as I mentioned here, um, tell us if you would, you know, what what your recovery, if you would care, sh- share with us your recovery journey. You know, that kind of like the, the structure of what what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, as you would share perhaps in a twelve step meeting. And you know, really, what we're interested, or at least what I'm interested in, is what got you into the recovery advocacy work that you do, um, and the mental health advocacy do, that you do, because it's so important. Um, I know you're the executive director of an organization. The name is escaping me, and I didn't write it down. I'm so sorry. Um, very unprofessional. I think I'm disconnected. My screen just went blank. We went blank too here. I don't know what happened, technical difficulties, but we're back and we're back with better, better than ever. Um, Mario, please share with us your recovery journey and what got you into this. Sure. Um, so um, I don't think my recovery journey or recovery story is is terribly unique, um, you know, but I'm, I'm happy to share it. And it's certainly my favorite story because it's mine. Um, um, you know, so, um, I grew up in New York city. I grew up in a home of love. Um, I did have some childhood trauma though. Um, and you know, from, from the youngest of ages, I recognize, and I remember feeling different apart from less than um, and having this like desperate desire to have affection and approval um, from others, whether that was a peer group or my family or um, other adults. Um, And we live forwards, right? But we understand backwards. So I don't know how much I, if I, if I really understood that, but when I look backwards, at my, um, you know, at my life, I see all of these like desperate attempts from a very young age, way before picking up alcohol or drugs, um, to garnish and gain the approval and the affection of others. Mm. Um, which, again, we live forwards, understanding, understand backwards, helps me to sort of codify this understanding that like. I was not okay in my own skin. Um, I had pain and confusion and anxiety. um, And the way that I, for whatever reason, believed or learned um, or both that um, to fix that was instead of looking within, it was looking without, right? Um, And I think that 
part of piecing things together for myself is part of what motivates me um, so to, to so emphatically normalize uh, the talking about mental health, right? Because had I at a young age um, had proper education and appropriate safe places to learn and talk about mental health, my trajectory might have been different. Um, I, I don't say that from a place of I wish or a place of regret. I am um, uniquely and completely at peace with every single piece of my journey because I understand that, you know, all of those um, instances and situations and circumstances, both joyous and triumphant and, you know, terribly painful and scary and tragic make me and make, you know, who I am today. Um, but I, I do think that that motivates me specifically to talking about normalizing mental health. Um, because had I know, I clearly I was having mental health stuff, whether or not it was mental illness, who knows, right? But I was clearly having mental health stuff at a very young age. Um, and had that, had I had positive coping mechanisms, different ways to deal with that, safe places to talk about it, I might have developed different coping mechanisms and gone down a different path than continuing to look for the outside to make me feel better since my insides weren't adding up, which eventually led me very aggressively to alcohol and drugs um, to numb and fix that. Um, so that being said, I ended up entering recovery when I was 21 years old. Um, I'm not going to spend a super long time telling you about the first time I picked up a drink and a drug to the last time I picked up a drink or a drug. Um, but I will tell you um, that alcohol and drugs brought me to my knees very, very quickly. I've been in recovery way longer than I was drunk or high at this point. Um, and um, you know, one of the things that I always make sure to talk about when I talk about my personal recovery story um, is to sort of um, really emphasize that I was able to enter recovery at the age of 21, right? And another one of the things that living forwards, understanding backwards, that I think motivates me so deeply and not from a place of regret, but a place of newfound clarity, right, around my own experience was um, I didn't know what recovery was. I didn't know that people got better once they were addicted to drugs or alcohol. Um, I didn't know what someone who suffered from a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder looked like. I had this very taboo, stigmatized picture of like, you know, middle-aged man, trench coat, bridge, <laughs> maybe or maybe not clothes underneath the trench coat. Um, and I was like, well, that's not me, right? Um, and so all of those, pic you know, all of those different pieces, right? And clearly, I am, you know, absolutely one of the lucky ones, right? I was able to find recovery at 21, but perhaps if I knew that recovery existed at 16, I would have found it at 18, right? Like for me, my story is one where once I was exposed to recovery, very shortly after I was exposed to it, I was able to find it myself. Um, and so I just, I think that is one of the big motivators for me too, to make sure that people know what recovery is and that it's possible. And that's why I recover out loud so much. Um, but so even though I don't have, you know, like 30 years of, of heartache as a result of my alcohol and drugs, I do have a very rapid decline very quickly. Um, and I'll paint a picture for you of what that looks like, you know, prior to finding recovery. Um, it looks like homelessness, it looks like incarceration, it looks like mental hospitals, it looks like prostitution, it looks like, um, you know, and more than all of those things, it looks like um, real desperation and dissolution and degradation. It looks like being stuck in a vicious cycle of not just alcohol and drug use, but tremendous pain and shame um, and heart ache and heartbreak for anyone who ever cared about me. 
Um, and it was very, very lonely and it was very, very scary. Um, and um, that is, you know, what the years of 17 to 21 looked like for me. Um, and I found recovery actually while incarcerated um, at age 21 um, after going to and absconding from a treatment center. Um, and, um, and, you know, my recovery has been um, very challenging the first couple years. Um, and I say that because I also think that those are some of the things that have catapulted me to advocate so aggressively um, because I believe truly that I am, you know, in recovery still to this date through, like I often say, through grace and grit. Um, and, you know, I sigh because uh, although those are a beautiful part of the equation, like, excuse my language, but like, that's a fucking shame that I'm in recovery because of grace and grit, right? And also at this point, I have enough sort of ability to look back and, and recognize that really it's a combination of grace, grit, and my own privilege. Um, and I, I think that's one of, that's probably the third component that propels me to be so active and so loud in my advocacy and so dedicated to it because although yes, anybody can recover, right? Um, and idealistically and theoretically, you know, recovery is available to all. Practically, I know that that's not true. Um, I know that not only do people not know about recovery, but there are tremendous barriers to accessing and maintaining recovery, especially if you are in a marginalized population. Um, and I am, you know, tired of recovery being this transformative, redemptive, you know, anomaly. <laughs> I am, recovery needs to be the expectation um, based on the way that individuals uh, are supported um, both by humans and by systems. That, that's, that's amazing. And I love, because I know you outside of this and I, I mean, I know you in spaces where we've worked on things and, and I see how dedicated you are and hearing just a little bit of your story. Um, I didn't realize that you had found your recovery in, in while you were incarcerated. I also found recovery while I was incarcerated. And you may or may not know this, but our biggest audience, Mariel, is actually individuals who are currently experiencing incarceration. We take these podcasts and to Paytel uh, for free, and they distribute it. I, I believe they have access free in, I think it's 48 different um, jails and uh, uh, jails and institutions across the across the country. And so we're we're now receiving people here at McShin who have seen us, you know, which sometimes it's kind of weird. It's disconcerting to be recognized by somebody when they walk in the door and you don't expect it. But um, at the same time, it's 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 really awesome that we're able to do that reach because we're getting to three hundred thousand people almost in just the last quarter. Just the last quarter. Um, three hundred thousand what views uh you know of, of the show so you know this is an incredible tool that we were able to really develop and dis and discovered because of the pandemic when we knew that our jail programs here we couldn't do that anymore and we knew mm -hmm. we had to continue to put that message because that link is so important um it's so important to, to get that hope I, I didn't know there was a possibility of recovery you know i didn't know what that was and for me early on i didn't have a problem Everybody else had a problem. You had a problem. You had a problem. The, the cop lied. All the things, and and it really took somebody who had been in my shoes to to show me that there was a a way to out for me. And it continues to be the case for me when when I screw up and I I, I fall down and I come back up. I love that you have your dog in the background. Sorry. <laughs> you know it humanizes us, right? Like like in recovery now, like my biggest. Deals are, you know, do, do I take a shower at night? Do I take a shower in the morning? Do I take two showers? Like, these are the things that are complex in my life today, you know? Um, and I love that. So you are, you've been in recovery since you were 21 years old. Yeah. 
and and without asking your age, um, what have you done as your advocacy? Because I know that you were, I know you were executive director of the Amon Foundation, and are I you still? Like Okay. So I was, I was, so I was, I was so trying to, I'm, please tell me. So I always, I used to always say Ammon sounds like salmon without the S, but I digress. <laughs> um, I like that. So no, I'm not currently the executive director of the Ammon Foundation. Unfortunately, the Ammon Foundation, which I was incredibly privileged to be the first executive director of and build into an incredibly impactful you know, powerhouse of an organization um, closed during COVID. Um, so um, starting at the beginning of this year, I'm leading a different organization that is um, not in the, well, is not directly in the addiction recovery or behavioral health space as a child welfare agency. However, as you know, we all know there is such an intersectionality between, um, you know, foster care involved youth and parental substance use, um, as well as, you know, myriad other causes, you know, things like domestic violence and, um, you know, alcohol misuse and, you know, all sorts of other things that create the perfect storm around child welfare. So although I'm technically not in the behavioral health space, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not too far away from it. <laughs> um, I'm not too far away from it. Um, and it really is an incredible opportunity to look at how do we support um, children, you know, child victims, um, some of whom are impacted by parental substance use, some of whom are impacted by their own substance use, and some who may not necessarily have been exposed to it yet, um, but are at a much higher risk for their own substance use. Um, and that is not all that drives me. There are so many other things that I have an opportunity in this position to, to be involved in, but as someone who has, you know, 10 plus years in the behavioral health space, um, it is, you know, um, it would have been really difficult to go into something that was like, you know, environmental justice or like a, 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 a good cause, right? But that had no tie to, you know, where part of my heart is. Well. I love that. And I, I read that, that you were doing that, the child welfare piece, because, you know, when we look at ACE scores, ACE surveys here, the, what is it, adverse childhood um, experiences mm -hmm. surveys, and we look at that and we see the correlation. I mean, it's the, with substance use disorder and trauma, early childhood trauma, um, g being in the field of, of, of getting, at, getting at the root causes, you know, I think that, that that's so vital to have the experience to know what can happen. And I love that for you. I love that for you and I love what you're doing. And, you know, I have the honor of serving with you on a work group and, and I joined, I don't know, a year and a half ago, two years ago on this work group and, and our focus, I guess it was probably two and a half years ago, actually, I think that's when we first met or right before, right after we first met. And we work on uh, normalizing and harmonize, harmonizing language and and all the things uh, around what it means to be in recovery and i what i love about that is i didn't have a language of recovery when i first got here i didn't know how to advocate for myself um yet alone advocate for somebody else and so being involved in those spaces in these spaces you know i've been able to open my mind using my the the, the skills i learned in my recovery to open to be open-minded to be willing and to be honest to then turn that into a way to help other people and you getting out there and taking what you've done your experiences and now working with children i got a lot of love for you on this one and you're doing it in my home state of new jersey so I, <laughs> I, I, you're from central jersey though right is that yes. correct yeah Mom's so i'm in south jersey here but but i digress um so what is a difficult day for you? By the way, Honesty Liller, our CEO, is watching, and she says dog rule, and I love that because she's – but she also mentions um, – what does she say? Oh, 48 states, uh, nearly 500,000 views, videos, and completed videos in the past fiscal year. Oh, cool. I thought – I thought it, I, I think that's uh, pretty amazing. Um, what does recovery look like for you in your day-to-day -day now? You know, what's the hope shot? You know, do we do we get into recovery and then destined to a life of poverty and, and boredom? So I would hope not, right? <laughs> and before I get too, like, 
on my soapbox about, you know, barriers to recovery and systemic racism and um, all of these things. Um, so I believe wholeheartedly, right, that, um, you know, we talk a lot in a clinical space about like relapse prevention, right? Um, and I am not degrading or minimizing the value of effective clinical treatment. Right. Um, and having a treatment plan and aftercare plan and all of those things. However, my humble opinion is that like the greatest relapse prevention is being able to live a whole purposeful and meaningful life. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that every moment is joyous and perfect and copacetic and like unicorns and butterflies. Right. But that, <laughs> but that does mean, you know, um, and I call these the four pillars of, a, of recovery. Um, it does mean that people have access to safe housing, stable employment, continued education and adequate health care. And I don't think those are just the four pillars of recovery, as I'm especially now as I'm venturing into, you know, the child welfare space, I really just think those are the four pillars of well-being, right? <laughs> we think about social determinants of health um, and we, we look at, you know, the value of community um, right in the middle of all four of those things. And so earlier I had said that the first couple of years of my recovery was very challenging and I was able to maintain my recovery in spite of them. Right. And so I just want to give a couple of examples of what I mean. Um, you know, after several years of smoking crack and a very severe eating disorder um, and not being to the dentist um, in early recovery, I had severely inflamed gums and was in pain all the time. Um, and I wasn't able to get to the dentist because I didn't have insurance um, and I couldn't afford to pay out of pocket for the dentist. And because it was so complicated to navigate the social services um, you know, space um, to get on Medicaid and get approved and you know, all of these things, I just sort of suffered for almost 18 months before I was able to get to the dentist. And I don't say that looking for any type of pity, um, but I was able to stay in recovery in spite of that, right? Um, that may not be everybody's case, right? And this is where grace and grit comes into place, mm -hmm. right? Um, there is totally reason to use alcohol or drugs to cope with that the shame of it, the embarrassment, the pain, the physical pain, the emotional pain, like it would be a no brainer for somebody with a substance use disorder to try to, to not know how to deal with that and to numb out, right? And that's just one of multiple examples that I have. I tried to go back to school. Um, you know, uh, it was incredibly challenging because I was out of state. I couldn't get the in-state tuition level, even though I'd lived there for years, because technically I was still a dependent of my mom. Like all of these complicated, you know, policies that became barriers to me pursuing education. Again, through grace and grit, I was able to finally figure it out, right? And then once I got there, I didn't have the life skills to be a successful student. I was, I didn't know how to study. I was anxious and overwhelmed about money. I was unsure about my housing. I didn't have a self-care practice that was effective. And so what ended up happening is I ended up dropping out because I was too overwhelmed. And what that did was just solidified my own tape of self, you know, self inner monologue of, you're not worthwhile. You're never going to be able to accomplish anything. You're not intelligent. You're a failure. You're not good enough, you know, ad infinitum, right? So I was able to maintain my recovery in spite of that, right? And I have all of these examples where I had tremendous challenges in front of me that were mostly systemic, right? That were mostly, um, you know, um, 
because there were policies that were not person centered. There were policies that are, you know, not informed by lived experience. There are practices that were rooted in stigma or discrimination um, that, you know, that I, I came up against all of these barriers. And I, I think it's worth saying I came up against all these barriers also as, you know, a 21 year old white cisgender female. Um, and so, living forwards and loving living and you know understanding backwards i you know i really believe strongly that um i have an onus and an obligation and we you know especially since i've been through it but as a society we have an onus and an obligation to really look at these things um to try to change fix dismantle improve <laughs> whatever you want to call it all of the above um so that you know, recovery just doesn't have to be so hard for folks. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, so we are in a lot of spaces where we get to, to, to work and look, you know, together and how different states are doing that same thing. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the recovery advocacy project. I'm, I'm a part of that nationally and in Virginia here, and we've just launched our platform. And a lot of what you're saying, you know, we, we opened up uh, listening sessions for the last seven months now, I think eight months now, we've had listening session after listening session to, 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 get the grassroots ideas, you know, to, to say, what do we need in the recovery community? And one of the reasons I love doing this show and getting people from out of state is that to get different ideas. Um, we had people on from Rhode Island the other day, and uh, I don't know if you saw the show or, or heard what we talking, what we were talking about, but they just passed three laws that the governor has now signed in the, the, the trick, right? And the buprenorphine one, wasn't even something I would even think about, you know, because it, that's it's not hasn't actually happened to me. And so when that, yeah, and you know, which I, I'm now, of course, I'm the idea is wonderful, and you know, let's see how we can incorporate that. Let's do it, work on that. Um, but it's you know, again, having the 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 different experiences, having everyone coming together, you know, because I, I, I get what you're saying. Like I I I've had barriers to recovery myself, and and yet. I come at this from also a very loving, caring family as a cisgender white male who is only just now starting to appreciate that privilege of coming into this space. And, and still sometimes I, I feel myself battle with it and I'm grateful that I have people around me who aren't... Um, who can remind me without judgment or at least help me to find why I'm wrong, you know, or, or help me to, to think differently because I, 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 recovery is for everybody. Recovery is possible for anybody seeking it. Um, and we are now challenged, I think, to, you know, as people in recovery, I think we are now challenged to maintain our recovery by helping the next person. And some of us do it like, you know, what we're doing here. We do advocacy work um, sometimes. Well, we're all doing advocacy work in different ways, I think, everybody in recovery. And that's been the strongest thing for me to, to, to develop in my recovery is how to better advocate not only for myself now, but, but now for other people who don't have a voice. But going one step further, empowering and emboldening others to use their voices or to learn how to use their voices. And... I can't tell you how grateful I am to be able to count people like you, you know, people like you know the the rap people I talk to all the time among my network, you know, the people I look to who are doing the work that that can sit here and come on here and talk about this is what I did in my active using without being, you know, with without having to worry about whether I'm judging you or not because I can sit here and tell you about the things I did, you know, which may or may not relate exactly to what you're saying. And there's no judgment. You know, we come at this space open-minded and willing to make some some policy changes. What are you doing? How are the relationships with your family? And I do understand so you 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 have you are married and you have a dog and I know your husband painted the two dogs. You have two dogs and painted the <laughs> idea things sound like they're going pretty good for you right now so tell me what what is that what is that like for you family and all that stuff sure um so you know and it's it's so cliche right but you know in, in a lot of the the rooms of recovery they talk about like life beyond your wildest dreams and when i i didn't used to understand that concept right because it was like i don't know i have some pretty wild dreams i don't know how recovery is going to help me to get there um but what i've come to understand right is that um 
what is the intention behind that is um, the life that I've been able to build um, since entering recovery in 2007 um, is a life that I didn't think I was worth of, worthy of. It's a life that I didn't know I wanted. <laughs> it's a life that um, has all of these things that I didn't think were possible for me or on the agenda or that I'd be able to accomplish. Right. And one of those certainly is family. Right. Um, you know, as someone who is, you know, a long time, um, you know, victim of, you know, severe sexual violence, um, severe sexual trauma um, and a, you know, smattering of very toxic, very abusive relationships um, for years the concept of having a faithful, loving, um, equal partnership was like not even on my radar for a very long time. Um, the same thing with, you know, the relationships that I have with my mother or my sister or my niece and my nephew or, um, you know, etc. These are relationships and humans that I you know, harmed definitely emotionally and spiritually, some physically <laughs> that I stole from, that I, you know, brutalized in every way possible, um, you know, and, and walked away from with, com without any regard, um, you know, and, and these are now like the most important relationships in my life. Um, which again was so far off the radar of possibility, um, you know, from the way it, my life looked before I entered recovery. And, it, you know, those are just two of the areas, the same thing, like I wasn't employable. Right. Before I entered recovery. Like now I lead an agency with a multi-million dollar budget. <laughs> like I, you know, I was, I had outstanding warrants before I entered recovery. Like now I'm on the TSA pre-checklist when I travel, like things like it's just so, and like, it's just so different. It's just so different. Um, you know, a hundred, uh, you know, 180 degrees um, in every area. And so when I think about like my wildest dreams, right, they're wild because they were things that I, didn't think I was worthy of, or didn't even know that I wanted at the mm. time. Um, you know, and, and it just, you know, it just keeps getting, and the last thing I'll say about, I'll say about education and, and wild dreams, right? So I already told you that, and I think that, I mean, education is the platform in which I really have been able to rebuild my life. Um, I believe that education is second to none. I, when I say education, I don't just mean traditional higher education. I also think, you know, certificate programs, vocational training, um, all of that is falls under the way I define education. Um, but my recovery pre-continued education and post-continued education is also 180 degrees different. Um, so I told you that I dropped out of my attempt at community college when I was a year or two sober. Um, you know, what I didn't tell you is that is after dropping out or being kicked out of five colleges prior to entering recovery. Um, and so in about 2013, um, I went back to community college. Um, I went back with a lot of trepidation, um, a lot of fear about my ability to be successful, and a lot of self-doubts. However, since my first attempt at County College in recovery and my second, I had built um, a very strong community around myself, um, and I had um, developed some life skills, and some of the things that were plaguing me the first time that I went back to school were no longer issues. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't worried about safe housing. I wasn't worried about a stable job. I, so some of those things which allowed me to focus on school. And what school did for me is it didn't just teach me like sociology and mathematics and biology, right? But really what school did for me is it taught me about what I was interested in, what I was good at, what I wasn't so good at, <laughs> um, you know, 
resilience, my abilities and my capabilities, my intelligence, what was interesting to me. Um, and so I went from like a six time college failure to being asked to be the commencement speaker at my community college, to being wow. given a full scholarship to continue my education, to graduating summa cum laude and currently pursuing my PhD. And wow. I'm not saying that that needs to be everybody's trajectory, right? But like that is what's possible in recovery um, with community, with support, um, you know, and absolutely with grit and grace, but also with systems in place that support me and my success as a human being um, to thrive. That's an, that's an that's an incredible journey, and I think that that I, I was laughing a minute when you were talking about getting kicked out of school because that's so that's a part of my story, you know. And and I don't know if I've got five. I think it's four, but um, I, I can sit here and think it might be one I'm missing, and it probably is actually because it was over twenty some odd years. But I, I love this. This is really empowering and. I want to I want to go back just a second though to to finding your recovery in jail and the tools and and what related how did that work and what tools did you acquire and what happened when you got out of jail as far as continuing to build this that, that recovery capital essentially building that recovery capital to put you in place for now and what it is that you know perhaps could have been improved on at that time you know what what was lacking i guess sure um so i think what was really pivotal um about when i was incarcerated um and so so let me digress for a second i have very conflicting thoughts about the justice system and <laughs> um incarceration yeah. and um addiction and mental health issues being public health issues and not uh, i mean needing to be you know viewed and treated as such um and you know let alone you know the years of a racist drug war and people getting you know ending up in in jail instead of treatment um so I just want to put that on the table. There's a lot there. <laughs> However, for me, I know that um, when I was arrested, which is May 7th, 2007, which is my recovery date, um, and I was brought to Volusia County Correctional Facility by the New Smyrna Beach Police Department, um, it separated me and removed me from a cycle that I was unable to break at that time on my own. Um, and that separation allowed, which could have happened in a treatment center also, or a, or a religious set, which could have happened another way, right? But again, I look at my life without regret and believing that every piece is in the place it needed to be to get me to where I am and who I am today. Um, but that removal and that separation became the catalyst for me to be able to have some clarity about who I was, how I was living, and what I wanted out of life and my future. Um, and that for me, there wasn't this, you know, some people talk about this incredible moment of clarity and this epiphany and, you know, this surrender and, um, you know, that's not my experience. My experience, though, is over a period of time, um, while being behind bars, it gave me an incredible, now, I don't want to say wake up call, but it gave me the space. It gave me the space to have some self-reflection that became the catalyst for me wanting to pursue recovery. That's that's beautiful. I just I just read your private chat, so I apologize. But <laughs> did did uh, 
I don't, I don't have, I can't change things. I, I, I keep my laptop here, but um, your advocacy journey and how did you get into advocacy? I think we talked about that a little bit, um, but is there something you want to expand on there? Because that is such a, an important piece of what you do and, you know, where, how we know each other in, in our spaces. So what got you into the advocacy and, you know, all that education, you could be making a mint at a treatment <laughs> so so the only reason why I put it in the private chat is you indeed had asked me that question a couple of times and you said it in the intro. So I thought it was important and I felt like I had just sort of glossed over it to points that I felt were more important. So I, I just wanted to circle back, um, you know, and, and I do think it is important. Um, you know, so the first couple of years that I was in recovery, um, I was very dedicated to helping others. That's become a cornerstone of um, not just my recovery, but my life and who I am and how I live my life. Um, and that's also not just relegated to people with substance use disorder. Um, that's just become part of the fiber of who I am. Um, so that being said, I was very, very dedicated to um you know, to helping especially other young girls that, you know, um, you know, pull themselves out of um, and find the same, you know, the same joy and peace and life that I was able to find in recovery. Um, so as I'm sure you know, and as many of the audience may know, but also, and I forget after doing this for so long, many may not know, um, my dear, dear friend, Greg Williams, put out a movie, The Anonymous People, years ago. Um, and with John Schoenholzer, he was there. He was there. John was there. I got to give John credit and Carol and, yep. you know, um, Tom Hill and Aaron Kacharski and Pat and you know all of these people whose shoulders I have had the the honor and privilege of of climbing on um you know and have absolutely um you know laid the path and been an example um you know not just for me but you know for a recovery movement that sometimes we mint as new but people like john um you know and the others that i listed have been doing you know doing this for for 30 years right um so um when that movie came out it was um it was a there was a shift for me about understanding my role in being able, or my ability in being able to help people. Hmm. Um, and that not for a second was what I was doing wrong. And to this day, I still am devoted to helping one-on-one -on -one young women or older women <laughs> find recovery, you know, um, uh, on their own personal pathways. But what became clear to me was that there was micro impact and there was macro impact. And that if I really wanted not to change the world, which I did, but I, but if I really wanted for everybody to be able to access what I had, that there were systems changes and perception changes that needed to occur. And that I had the ability and in my heart, I felt the responsibility to take some of that on. Um, and after that, it all kind of happened very quick, right? It was all sort of kismet and, you know, uh, right places, right time, right people. Um, you know, uh, I had just moved to New Jersey. I, you know, didn't have a job um, or, I mean, I had a job, but like, it wasn't like a serious job. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have a lot of friends. I had this sort of newfound passion in getting involved in, in advocacy or community organizing or whatever. I don't think I quite understood what it was. Um, so I, you know, was looking for volunteer opportunities. At the time, my very dear friend, Aaron Kucharski was running um, the, NCADD New Jersey advocacy program, um, which, you know, still, and I obviously am biased, is the best goddamn advocacy program that has ever existed. And is completely a pioneer in terms of the way that he brilliantly organized the state regionally and empowered volunteers, um, you know, on all spectrums of the continuum from impacted to families of loss to 
people in recovery um, to speak out and advocate for addiction as a public health issue. Um, and so I started to volunteer. He offered me an internship. They took a chance on me and gave me a job. Um, Aaron left. I started to run the pro, you know, the, run the program, um, you know. And then I applied to this new foundation, not for a job, for a scholarship. Um, and they reached back out to me and offered me a job, you know, like just all of these incredible opportunities that have, um, you know allowed me to get my foot in the door. And I think if I if I can speak about my advocacy journey and my priorities and what's important, for a very long time, um, you know, I was advocating and focused on stigma. For a very long time, I was advocating and focusing on lived experience at the table, um, which still are two of the things I'm most passionate about. It's almost as though I've done a full circle from starting with being most passionate about stigma to once again realizing the value of it. Because, and I think, and this is meant maybe for those who have been more involved in advocacy or the recovery movement um, than people who are newly exposed. After being involved for so many years, I think I got tired of the stigma conversation because it was exhausting. And I think it was like, well, so many people get it, right? We've made so much progress with stigma. However, um, and that's absolutely true. Um, but when I leave my bubble, right? And I have a conversation or I listen to two people talking in the supermarket or, uh, you know, about a tabloid cover or something they saw on their social media feed. Um, the stigma around mental illness and substance use is so deeply rooted um, that like I'm once again charged to, um, to make stigma my top priority. But my advocacy journey has been thrilling and convoluted and confusing and exciting in so many ways um you know and and what i you know from the white house you know with obama to you know a public access campaign with the governor that was you know all over you know new york new jersey you know the metro area like on the super bowl like to potentially more importantly working one-on-one -on -one with new advocates and seeing this understanding of the value of their voice, right? Or learning a new skill, um, you know, getting, being a part of getting legislation passed or, you know, so many exciting things, right? Um, and what I just want to share, because I know we're getting, we still only have 10 minutes and I, I feel like you've wanted to interrupt me several times with questions, um, is, is um, you know, there's been two big awakenings for me when it comes to advocacy that um, are really, really important. And the first was after I sort of had been doing it a couple of years, um, was this like mind-blowing earth-shattering, trajectory-changing understanding and acknowledgement of my own bias around different recovery pathways, especially medication. Um, and needing to separate my personal experience from as, as the gold standard for recovery. Um, and educating myself and exposing myself um, to this concept of many pathways to recovery and being in recovery when you say you're in recovery and really learning um, what the different pathways are, how they might be beneficial for folks, how to access them, what the barriers are, etc. So that was one that completely like Again, these are these two like mind-blowing, earth-shattering, life-changing moments for me in advocacy. And the second was a couple of years later when I really began to understand my own privilege, the role that it had had in my recovery process, um, and how incredibly misogynistic and racist um, all of our systems are and that um you know that this discrimination um 
and that's what I'm going to call it, that this discrimination had been going on for years and that um, I had been complicit in it, even in my advocacy, my well-intended advocacy. Um, and that I had two choices, right? And really I only had one choice, right? Um, but the choice was to continue as I was, which was unknowingly causing harm and allowing myself to continue to be part of a larger problem, or I needed to take intentional action. And, you know, Dr. Condi, what he talks about when he talks about anti-racism, um, and I think there's a lot of parallels between racism and misogyny or the patriarchy, right, um, is he talks about you're anti-racist or you're racist, period, hard stop, right? Um, and really grappling with what that meant and what that looked like and what that called me to do and say moving forward. Um, you know, and so, you know, in my advocacy journey, those two things have been um, the most defining um, awakenings or understandings or shifts that I've experienced, not necessarily moments, right? I can talk about incredible moments, right? Like speaking at the Fed Up rally, you know, in, on the national lawn with Greg, right? In front of thousands and thousands of people, right? Or, you know, I can talk about moments that have been life-changing. But when I talk about like changing from the inside out, the way that I think, feel, and view things, people, systems, my work, my calling, those have been the two things that have been most impactful um, and carry me in the work that I do today and the words that I use and the panels or the podcasts or whatever it is that I agree to participate in. Um, you know, those are the things that I fall that I fall back on. That's that's amazing, and and I I didn't want to interrupt you. I I, I may have been just kind of chortling or agreeing and, and laughing, but you know I, I I just adore you, and that may sound patronizing, but I I just love you, and and I'm so grateful to have you with us in this space. And I think we could probably go on for another hour or two. I didn't realize you had a connection with Aaron uh, Kucharski, and and he has become. Um, well, because he's so involved with what we do, you know, all the different states with rap, but with Virginia rap, you know, he's there at our meetings almost all the almost every meeting. So I've gotten to know him very, very well, and really, really appreciated his experience. Well, experience, strength, and hope, um, but the knowledge too, you know, all that comes with the experience. So I love that we have that extra connection. I didn't know about this. This world is really amazing. Um, uh, this recovery world. So I. I just want to shout out. I think um, Debbie Debbie uh, Rosenbaum said uh, thanks. Thank you, thank you, Justin. Debbie says, "Mariel, God bless you, and thank you for sharing and giving others the hope and knowledge that people can and do recover. That life after addiction can be full and possible. You're an amazing face and voice of recovery." Um, she also comments that, that we've had strong women on this week, and I didn't even realize that all of our guests this week had been women until she mentioned it. And as it turns out, we've had all women all week. That's amazing. Um, Patrick Jones, going back to what you said, and this is funny because what Patrick says, Patrick Jones says, everything that was just said in the last four minutes, he's talking about when you were uh, getting arrested uh, around your recovery date and on all those feelings. Um, he says, I can identify so much. That is my view on the justice system. Also, jail saved my life and gave me the time to focus on myself that I needed. And I relate to that comment that when you were telling that story, I felt like you were telling my story. And the reason I find that particular. So so I'm a person who likes to identify where the gaps are. And I had a Commonwealth attorney. Uh, it's like a district attorney in another state. But we have Commonwealth attorney here. We had the Richmond City Commonwealth attorney on the show about a year, a little over a year ago. And we were talking back and forth and she asked me, you know, Nathan, would you have found recovery if you hadn't gotten arrested? And I said, well, that's a loaded question because I don't know. There wasn't an alternative at the time. And and since then, actually, I talked to her fairly regularly and, and I've actually campaigned for her. So, you know, I appreciate her and her, her work, but it, it was an important, I think, revelation on her part 
I hope it was, and an important revelation on my part, you know, understanding that there's, there is an alternative and we see that in Portugal, you know, as we talk about, and we see that a little bit in what's going on with Oregon as we're discovering what's working and what's possibly not working as they look at the things that aren't being, it's not mandated. So people are just paying the hundred dollar fine and going on with their day, but it's still taking the question of the public health issue out of the criminal justice system. And I, I have to applaud that. Um, so we have a lot of work to do, and I love that that we've got people like you out there fighting for recovery, telling your story bravely and honestly, and sharing that experience. You know, sharing that hope shot that we talk about um, with the people. And so, I just I'm really grateful that you're here. Thank you so much for coming today. I would love to continue forever, but I think we we need to land the plane, as Justin and I always say. Um, but Mario, any final thoughts, any words you want to add before we close out? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, it's been a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and it's been fun. Grace and grit. I'm going to write, I have a, a whiteboard in my office. You might see it sometime when, when we do meetings together, but I've added many uh, quotes underneath and I'm going to put you on there because I like that, grace and grit. Um, and self-care too. I, I, I wrote self-care and circled that. And that's a, another conversation for another time but, um, what, because we could go for hours, but I want to know what you do for self-care. And so I think, you know, I hope that, uh, and it sounds like you've got a well-balanced existence up there. So anyway, I just want to say thank you, of course, to Justin and Derek behind the scenes here, um, to everybody listening. Uh, I want to also remind everybody and thanks again, Mario. Um, this is the McShin Foundation's 17th anniversary. And so we've been doing this for 17 years, not the show, but the, the, the work that we do you know, here at the Recovery Community Organization, providing same-day authentic peer recovery support services, um, on-demand services. We have recovery residents. We have 12 of them here in the Richmond area. We currently have probably close to 130 individuals residing in our recovery residences, coming straight out of jail pods, coming straight off the street, coming out of the treatment center for step up. And so we, you know, as John was talking yesterday at the community meeting, $135 a week for a step up house participant actually costs us $300 a week. I didn't know that number. And that to me is, out, is, is, is incredible. I mean, we obviously we balance our books because we keep the doors open and the lights on. But for 17 years we've been doing this. We've kept the doors open to the RCO and to the residences for every single day during the pandemic. We adapted and we accommodated while the CSBs, which are our behavioral health centers, our governmental behavioral health centers here in Virginia, while they were closing their doors, while the treatment centers were turning away people, and while emergency departments were essentially treating and treating or not even treating, you know, we continued to maintain with our doors open. And I think it's a testament to the power of authentic recovery, but to people like Mario, to people like, of course, John and Carol, who are in recovery and have a have a an interest in seeing progress here, and to the people here at the McShin Foundation and other organizations like us. I mean, it's let's let's face it. Every we 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 did a lot together, but non governmental organizations, non governmental agencies working together to make this happen. Well, the long and short of it, because I'm a long winded guy sometimes. Sorry, Justin. <laughs> sorry, Mario. We need funding. And for 17 years we've been doing this, we continue to need more money. Um, and, and to make sure that we have the doors open, to make sure that we can maintain for the next pandemic or for the next situation that comes up. You know, as you know, Mario, 93,000 people dying of an overdose last year. That's 29%, 29% over the year before. In Virginia, we had a 40% um, uh, increase uh, from from 1,700, I think, to 2,300 or 2,300. And, you know, looking at those numbers mean that we, we still have more to do. And I happen to, th I, I wonder what those numbers would look like if pieces, places like McShin weren't around, frankly. Um, down below, scrolling below, you can donate, jump in there, donate to our 17th anniversary fund, get in there, see if you can't um, help out. If you can't donate funds, that's fine too. You know, we are always looking for socks. We're always looking for underwear for our participants coming out of jail, you know, coming out of a situation where they, they don't have clean 
you know, I got here, I had a, a bag of clothes and I had a bag of food and that was it, you know, and they continue to feed me, help me to get resources that I needed. So if you can donate that, you know, get in touch with us, see what we can do um, together. All that, man. Um, we do a lot of cool stuff and I really, really am grateful to see you, Mario. I'll see you. I'll talk to you after this and for the next whatever meeting we've got next. Um, great to see you. Next week, next week, we're going to have Kyle in the studio again. Kyle's going to be talking about his experience, Strength and Hope, and we're going to see what some uh, some uh, fresh newcomer wisdom will bring to the show. And Wednesday, we got Women in Recovery, and Thursday, Thursday's grab bag. We don't know what's going to happen Thursday yet, so could be something crazy. So check in, get in the herd, and we'll see you next week. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thanks again, Mariel. <laughs> Misty Liller. I am the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery since May 27, 2007. I have not used drugs or alcohol. Woo -woo. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for Get In The Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShen, let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.